good morning. Thank you, Mark Bacher. It was great. Look forward to hearing it again at 11. And uh, thanks be to God. And if you're new here and all that was new to you, um, we're so glad you're here. And love to look around and see new faces. So welcome to worship with Downtown Presbyterian. And my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here. We, we like, when we can, to work through passages of Scripture, work maybe like work all the way through a book of the Bible. And what we're trying to do, or what we started in the fall, was working through the second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. And we, we took a break from that during Advent. Think about um, just what we celebrate at uh, Christmas, God becoming man and uh, this baby being born in Bethlehem. But we want to pick Mark back up this morning. So we're in Mark chapter 7. The passage is in the bulletin if you just want to follow it there. That's probably the, the easiest way to do it, Mark chapter 7. Um, this past fall, I reread a play that I first encountered in high school in an English class. It's a very southern kind of play. It's set in New Orleans. Everything's hot and humid as New Orleans is, it's uh, A Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams. And if you've ever read this play, or th- there was a film adaptation in the 50s, and, and uh, Vivian Lee, who became famously Gone with the Wind, she was Scarlett O'Hara, she plays one of the main characters named Blanche Dubois. Blanche Dubois is this very complex character. She shows up, she doesn't live in New Orleans, but she comes to stay with her sister and her brother-in-law who live in New Orleans. And Blanche Dubois carries herself as this very ladylike, very upright, demure woman with this real, real old South sensibilities about womanhood and propriety and manners and what's appropriate between men and women. And the truth is she has this incredibly scandalous reputation in her hometown that she fled. In fact, when the, when the film came out in the 50s, because it was the 50s, they really had to play down what all the play tells you. But I remember my English teacher pointing out that when you, when you read or watch Streetcar Named Desire, how often in that play Blanche Dubois is taking baths, hot baths. And this is in New Orleans. And she's staying with her sister and brother-in-law who have no air conditioning. And she's taking hot baths. And I remember my teacher pointing out, do you see what the what the author Tennessee Williams is doing there, he's showing you that she feels dirty. And this is her, this is her strategy. Uh, it doesn't work, but we all do that. We are all prone to do that. When we feel something about us is dirty, or that I've corrupted something, I've corrupted a friendship... I've gotten some kind of yuck on my family, or I've inserted yuck into a family gathering when we perceive that. We have all kinds of strategies that we come up with to try to feel clean again. It could be dry January. It could be a good idea, but it's not a great cleaner. Uh, It could be exercise. Other disciplines could be intermittent fasting. could be meditation. It could be practicing radical self-acceptance. It could be education and wide reading. And here's what I want you to notice when we go through this passage is Jesus 
does not challenge the feeling or the perception that there's something about me that desperately needs to get cleaned. What he challenges is the way that we go about it. Let's look at Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray again something that we have prayed over and over these last 20 years. We pray with the psalmist that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I went to seminary in St. Louis. That's graduate school for, for ministry. And um, my first summer, after my first year of, of uh, seminary, was 1993. And that summer, the Mississippi River flooded, a, a historic flood. And, of course, St. Louis is, is built on the Mississippi. And I'd never seen anything like it and the force of it. I later found out, and I've heard different numbers, but that what I saw in 1993 was about one-third of what happened in 1927. There was a historically significant flood of the Mississippi River in 1927. There's a really great book about this by a historian named John Barry called Rising Tide. And he talks about the mechanics of the river and what the flood did and how it affected American history. One of the things that Barry describes in that book, I'd never heard this term. I grew up near the Mississippi River, but I never heard this term. Is a sand boil. And a sand boil is when a river, in this case the Mississippi, has flooded so widely, so massively, and of course, it is exerting relentless pressure on the banks. It's never, it doesn't let up for one nanosecond at that flood stage, or ever. What can happen is the water will find some little outlet, like maybe a natural tunnel, and of course the water will push into it, and something like a geyser can come up behind the levee system. And it talks about the levying and the reinforcement of the levees and people just desperately making sandbags and sandbagging day and night and day and night trying to reinforce protection from this river. Can you imagine when you're just working on that, you've been working 24-7 and behind you something like a geyser shoots up, sometimes 200 yards behind you. And Barry says if the water was clear, that was the best case scenario. It, fa- it means that maybe the river just kind of found a natural tunnel and finally pushed through and up. But if the water was brown, it means it's already eroding the ground beneath you. The levee is compromised. All your effort is in vain. There is a river inside of us. And it exerts relentless pressure. And we feel it. And you better believe that the people closest to us feel it acutely. It's a river that can produce rage and comparison and shaming and addiction. All kinds of things that affect everybody around us. And sometimes we're oblivious to it, but sometimes even we experience that, oh, that river in me and all that relentless pressure is making, is making problems. It's destroying things and hurting things. And so we'll come up with our own levee systems and, and sandbags. What kind of levees do we come up with for our river? Um, it could be all kinds of things. Personal disciplines. Rituals. Maybe lifestyle design. I'm sure you've heard that term by now, lifestyle. You know, that's when you kind of say, okay, look, let me just get up over my life. And that's a smart thing to do, by the way. Let me get up over my life. Let me think about all the compartments of my life. Personal, relational, friendship, physical health, spirituality, uh, financial health, 
what is fun, what is leisure, just all, all these components, friendship. Let me get up over that. Let me, let me, what would it look like for the, this to be the best version of me possible? And, and what would that mean a year from now? How I want to change? And what are quarterly goals that I want to set to, to optimize this and be the best version of me that I can be? Let, let me design my life. That's a levy. Religion is a huge levy. It's a huge system of sandbags. And Jesus says this, you can do that if you want to. That river is so powerful, that is an act of futility. And the word that is all through this passage, I don't know if you picked up on it, but if if there was a key word to circle, if you're a circler, is defiled. Or defile. Something's dirty. Something's corrupted. And it's systemic. And so the question on the table is, what do we do about it? If it's there, Jesus doesn't deny that it's there. If you feel sometimes there's something dirty in me that gets on other people, gets on my family, gets on my friend, friendships, gets on my boyfriend, what, whatever. Oh, and especially that sabotages my best wishes and plans. Jesus doesn't challenge that. What he challenges is, what will you do about it? In this passage, he seems to draw a real contrast between there's the outside of us and there's the inside of us. And I can't help but think of an Old Testament passage that says this, man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the, you might know the last word, heart. And heart's not just your emotions. It's not just my emotions. It's just us. It's the real us. It's the real, the real deal, us, all of us. Where you think, where you feel, where you plan, where you, you, you will to do something, that's the heart. So let's look at the outside and the inside. How do you see Jesus challenge our outside? And in this passage, it has a lot to do with this sort of Jewish intelligentsia, sort of the, they're like the Jedi of the Torah, a phrase I've never used before. Okay, they're the Jedi of the Torah, they're the Pharisees and the scribes. And the challenge centers around this thing called the tradition of the elders, And the tradition of the elders at that point was mostly, in fact, almost exclusively an oral tradition. The scriptures were written, and very importantly, the law of God was written, the Torah. But the oral tradition was passed down and it generally went back to extremely influential rabbis who would say, really, it went back before them to Mount Sinai. It just wasn't written down. And this is how you're going to learn how not only not to break the law of God, this is, going to ha- this is how you're going to learn not to even get close to breaking the law of God. We're going to put up buffers and walls and wiring and German shepherds so you don't even get close to breaking the law of God. And all that buffer and system and regulations and rules, that's the tradition of the elders. Jesus challenges it. For at least a couple of reasons. Number one, it's excessive and it's external. Now, what does it mean for something to be excessive? It means that it, it exceeds. 
And in this case, the tradition of the elders exceeded the law of God. It didn't just keep the law of God, the law of Moses. It went beyond it to require things that God doesn't require or to forbid things that God doesn't forbid. Look at how Jesus says, what you're doing is excessive. Look in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God. Boy, that's something to say to the Jedi. You leave the commandment of God and hold to... He never says the tradition of the elders. He will not dignify it with that term. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And man, he tells a doozy of an example. He says, in his day, what some people were doing, which, and in doing this, they were keeping the tradition of the elders, is the normal cultural expectation would be when your mom and dad get old and, and, and dad can't work anymore and even mom can't work anymore is that you care for them. Out of your finances, not out of your family's finances. They're your parents. You care for them. But in the tradition of the elders, if you wanted to, you could say, Hey, Mom, Dad, that money that I would have used to take care of you is korban. It's dedicated to God, which means you will get zero. And man, if you had it in for your mom and dad, and they had really rubbed you the wrong way, and you wanted to just finally twist the knife, that'd be a really cool religious way to do it. There's a sand boil. How much are you tithing? How many steps do you take on the Sabbath? I hate you, Mom and Dad. He says you do lots of things like that. At the expense of the very thing that was commanded and written down on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai to honor your father and mother. And and he says it again. Look in verse 13. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. It is excessive. But here's here's the real rub. It's external. The tradition of the elders dealt in external behaviors. And man, so, you know, wash your hands the right way. There's one part of this passage that's extremely difficult to translate from the Greek. it's It's in verse 4. It talks about... Uh, excuse me, verse 3, it says, unless they wash their hands properly. Every English translation says that a little bit different because it literally says, wash with the fist. And we don't know what that means. Does it mean that they like did this? That was the ceremonial washing? Or you hold your hand in a fist-like way to conserve water? It It doesn't matter. What it's saying is there's a right way to hold your hand to keep to the tradition of the elders. And God never commanded this. The only people commanded to wash are priests. In their priestly duty. But no, if you really get it right, you you don't just wash your hands. You hold your hand just this certain way and then your hands are not defiled. And then you keep to the tradition of the elders. Uh, Jesus puts his finger right on that. Verse 6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now, do you know what that word means? I, 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 you know what a hypocrite is, but do you, do you know the origin of that term? It really, in some ways, comes from the Greek theater. A hypocrite is a mask wearer. 
almost this kind of Mardi Gras looking mask, just like kind of staid expression. It's a mask. Now, if I, if I put on a lion mask, I'm not a lion. It's just a mask. I know you know that. You know what we often don't know? If I put on the mask of a strong person, that doesn't mean I'm strong. And if I put on the mask of a calm person, that doesn't mean I have peace and shalom. And if I put on the mask of a nice person, that doesn't mean that I'm actually loving and kind. Jesus is so opposed to mask wearing it can make nice Southerners actually feel awkward. Especially in the Gospel of Matthew, he goes after mask wearing. The word hypocrites is all through Matthew, especially Matthew 23, when he confronts the Pharisees. You're mask wearers. He talks about, you're like whitewashed tombs. Man, they are so clean and wholesome on the outside. Inside full of dead men's bones. And corruption. <clears throat> Jesus opposes mask wearing. And let me ask you this. Are we doing this too? It's easy to look at this and go, oh man, the Pharisees, the worst, worst, and not see ourselves. Are there rules that we come up with that uh, go beyond Scripture and we get more preoccupied with that than what God says? We do it all the time. You know, you, you might have said in your life, hey, if we go out to eat, when that meal comes, we're not going to be embarrassed about what we believe. We're going to bow our heads and we're going to close our eyes and we're going to thank God in public. Now, do not stone me when I tell you this. We're not commanded to do that. We're commanded to give thanks always. But are you going to bow your head and pray always? And shocker, we're never commanded in Scripture to close our eyes when we pray. You know what we are commanded to do? Is bless our enemies. Bless them and do not curse them. Uh, if you always bow your head and close your eyes when you pray in a restaurant. And you want the worst for your enemies. Are you walking in the ways of God's commandments? Or in tradition? What kind of levees do we set up for ourselves? What kind of masks um, are we putting on? Man, all kinds of masks. Uh, pictures are masks. And I'm not going to go on a tirade about social media. That's just one place we have pictures. They can be analog as Christmas cards. Look how happy we are. Look how well the children are doing. Maybe we are doing well. Maybe the children are doing well. Maybe this is a mask. One big mask in our cultural moment is outrage. Outrage has become the dominant form of, not civil, civic discourse in the United States. Look how upset I am about this. Look what I'm willing to say online. Look what I'm posting about. Look what I like and dislike. Look at the strong stance I'm taking about this. Man, that can just feel awesome. And you know who I'd never have to deal with? Me. 
And it has become commonplace for the politician to be the one who is the most jazzed about family values and the most jazzed and amped up about sexual ethics in our culture is the one having the affair. We're, we're, we have grown accustomed to that story. It's almost like the Shakespeare line about, methinks he protesteth too loudly. Jesus opposes mask wearing, whether you're a Pharisee or a 2024 green billion. What about the inside? If I understand what Jesus is saying, he's making two big points. What goes, point number one, what goes in us does not defile us. What goes in does not defile. Verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Then look in verse 18. He says to his disciples, do you not understand this? Are you without understanding? Do you, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Now, I'm going to say something to you, and you're going to feel, a, I think, a huge, no, wait, wait, wait a minute, but what about, you're going, to, you're going to feel that rise up in you when I say this next thing, but hear me out, okay? The internet and social media does not put lust into us. Are you saying that what we look at is... Of course what we look at is important. Just like what you eat is important. Yeah, if you eat something with food poisoning, it will hurt you or kill you. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, what makes the river so powerful? Is it something that goes into you? The internet... And social media does not insert lust into us. Family does not insert anger and rage into us. Schools do not insert disrespect or worldliness into students. Seeing peers do well or seeing peers happily married does not insert coveting. Responsibility and deadlines and busyness does not insert the neglect of God's Word and the neglect of prayer. And going long stretches where I don't think about him, I don't need him. Our busyness and our deadlines do not insert that. Nothing outside a man defiles him. Here's the second point. What comes out defiles us. Out of where? Us. But, but what, do you, what do we mean out of us? Verse 6. Quote from Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The real them is far from me. Verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It's what comes out. Could you find yourself in that list that Jesus gives in verses 21 and 22? Evil thoughts, Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. Do you see yourself in that list? And it may be that on first blush you don't say, no, no, I, I was taught. I was taught about sexual purity. I, I, 
I've kept to that. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't engaged in sexual immorality. Can we think about that Jesus mentioned pride? The great spiritual enemy of us. Do, do the people who know you best and are closest to you, have they found that you just cannot be challenged about anything? Especially about your own goodness. And that if you are challenged about your goodness, you are defensive, or you give the cold shoulder, or you launch into litigation because somebody has like messed with your precious. That's pride. And it will take you, it will take us down. Jesus says, Where did that come? Did it come from outside? Did it come that you got too many compliments? It was already in there. It comes from the inside. So, super encouraging sermon so far. What, uh, where, do, where do we go with this? And I want to just come in for a landing. Look in verse 4. And Mark gives this little explanatory comment. He writes for Gentiles. So, he's, he's helping Gentile readers understand. What is the deal with this tradition of the elders? What is it? Verse 4. Uh, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And in the original, uh, that, that, is a, that is a fine translation, but the verb that's used there is baptize. To wash. W- whether it's immerse or sprinkle or pour, it's a washing with water, is a baptism. Um, that's not the first time that verb has shown up in, in Mark. It shows up in the opening words. And there's this wild man named John the Baptist. I think he would have freaked us out if we had seen him. He's dressed in animal skins. He ate locusts. He lived outside. I mean, I think he must have been terrifying. And weird. And that's who God sends to prepare the way for the Messiah. People wonder, is he the Messiah? We haven't heard any prophet for 400 years. Is this the Messiah finally? And please hear, if you don't hear anything else I say, please hear this part. John says, one's coming after me. And I'm not worthy to stoop down and loosen the straps of his sandal. I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's what he's saying. We're not going to be ready for the Messiah unless everybody's willing to come out here and physically, publicly, tangibly say, you know what, I need washing just like everybody else. But I can't wash that thing in us. I can't wash your insides. But one is coming and he can wash your insides. We talk about John the Baptist. Do you know who the great Baptist is? Jesus is the great baptizer. Has he washed you? Do you know he's washed you? And if he's washed you, do you believe he's washed you? Or are your feelings about yourself louder than him saying, you're clean now? There's a beautiful hymn, Rock of Ages, that says this. 
is talking to God, says, Be God, you be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. Jesus Christ is able not only to wash the real us, the, the heart, all those bad things, even the things we don't think are so bad, but that God knows are bad, wash them. And through baptizing you with the Holy Spirit to break the power of that river. To bre- and it, He does that over a lifetime, but Jesus, by His Spirit, can wash you Not just the guilt, but the power. We're in the days of Christmas tree burnings right now. If you go to a good Christmas tree burning, one of the best moments, the best moment is when the fire is at its biggest. You know what? When it gets that big, no one will have to tell you to back up. No one has to say, get a a circumference. You'll know. When you experience Jesus washing you, and when you experience Jesus breaking the power of sin, I won't have to stand up here and say, hey, stop running a PR campaign about yourself to feel clean. You'll know. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that you love sinners and send your Son to wash them. Lord Jesus, if you have washed us, let us walk in that good news. Believe you more than even our own feelings. But if we have tried to wash ourselves, risen Lord Jesus, have mercy on us and turn us towards you. We ask this in your name. Amen.